So I would first encourage anybody, novice, expert to estimating, really fine tune your definition of guess and estimate because we've all been there where kids are just like, 3,000. They just blurt out numbers. And that's literally what it is. It's a guess. And if you accept that, you accept their guesses, then they're going to continue to give them to you. And it's their easy way out of not thinking. If you find a strategic and welcoming way, an inviting way to uh, get them thinking by saying, hey, you know, an estimate is actually more like a strategic choice of a number. You're hearing great words and great wisdom from estimation180.com creator, math change agent in training, and all-around great guy, Andrew Stadel. In this episode, we'll dive into a great conversation about Andrew's math teaching journey, where he came up with the idea to create the math class favorite resource, estimation180.com, and how we can maximize the use of his resource to build number sense in our students and promote mathematical discourse in our classrooms each and every day. Hit it! Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of educators worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark engagement, fuel learning, and ignite teacher action. John, are you ready for an awesome episode with Andrew? Of course, Kyle, of course. Uh, What you'll notice in this episode is how passionate and thoughtful Andrew is when speaking about building number sense with his students and also teacher pedagogy with the teachers he works with. We know that you'll have lots of good takeaways from this episode. For example, listen carefully to how he explains the difference between a guess and an estimate. Before we get to the interview, it has come to our attention that some of our listeners are unaware of some of the many math resources we have available on the web. If you teach kindergarten through grade six, or you have young children at home and haven't been to John's site, Math Before Bed, at mathbeforebed.com, you are missing out. Be sure to check out the over 200 visual math prompts to engage in amazing math discussions with your children before bed or at the start of your class. Who said bedtime was reserved for reading only? Check out mathbeforebed.com. Without further ado, here's our chat with Andrew. Hey there, Andrew. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are so excited to have you on the show today. How are things over on the West Coast? Oh man, things are beautiful here. It's springtime. I'm excited to be here with you guys, hanging out, talking math, and yeah. Yeah. What is the weather right now over there? Like, I know it's springtime for us, but springtime for you has got to be something different. Yeah. So the sun's up a little bit earlier now these days, around six in the morning. The weather is probably here in California where I am. It's throughout the day. It's probably between 70 and 80. We're starting to approach mid 80s here in the next couple of weeks. That's awesome. How far from San Diego are you? We were just in San Diego recently for uh, NCTM. How far is that from you? Yeah. So that's about a 50 mile drive, which is about an hour with no traffic. So yeah, a good way to describe my location is pretty much like the midpoint of San Diego and Los Angeles. Andrew, we know who you are. We've chatted. We've talked to each other at conferences before, but maybe our listeners don't know exactly who you are. Maybe 
maybe they've used some of your resources before, but maybe they're not knowing your name. Could you just fill us all in a little bit about yourself and, you know, your teaching journey, how you got into teaching and where you are now? What's your role? I would say, I'm going to steal this phrase from Steve Linewan, like I'm a change agent in training, more or less. My day job is an instructional coach in my district, Tustin Unified. And I've had the pleasure for the last five years working with secondary math teachers as an instructional coach, just trying to do our best, uh, thinking about pedagogy, instructional moves, stuff like that. And prior to that, I was a middle school teacher for over 10 years, something like that. And I really fell into teaching. (laughs) (laughs) I've noticed that some of those you've had on before in terms of your interviews, like I'm one of those people that literally fell into teaching and started off with that. I needed something to pay the bills because music wasn't working for me. So played a lot of music. Whoa, whoa, in college. Whoa, whoa. Hang on. Music, yeah. music. Tell us more about yeah. that. Kyle's a musician <laughs> too. Maybe you guys I, can I, jam. What do you play, Kyle? I used to play. I always say used to. I haven't picked up the bass in a while, but I used to play the bass and sing uh, lead vocals for a band for a while in university to pay the bills. Nice. Were you? How many piece band were you? We were a three piece when oh. we did covers like casinos okay. and things like that. But when we did original stuff, we used to bring in a fourth member, uh, another guitar player. So it was kind of a dynamic trio slash quadro. Right on. Yeah, the couple main bands I was in, we were three pieces as well. Our bass player sang as well. I played guitar. And yeah, I played in a couple bands in and out of college. And once I got my degree, which was not in math, uh, (laughs) I started substitute teaching just to have some money, but then also have some flexibility with this like, hey, we're playing music, we're jamming, we've got rehearsal space, we got shows, stuff like that. Wait, did they base School of Rock off of you? Uh, Kyle, <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, uh, class. Yeah. So then once the music thing just started dying down, it was like, it was just this weird, perfect timing where I was seven at this private school and public schools, but the private school, I, I subbed one Friday in a math class, middle school math class. And the principal invites me into their office that afternoon after school goes out and puts a stack of books on the desk and is like, all right, so how would you like to be our full-time math teacher? Because (laughs) this was about February of the school year and their middle school math teacher kind of went MIA. And so they had just this revolving door of substitutes. And finally they're like, look, we got to bring somebody in. And they probably noticed I was green behind the ears and we're like, let's get this guy in. And it just worked out well. And what I loved about it was I had been working with kids out uh, ever since I graduated high school. Like in, I went back to my former high school and coached. So I was always around kids, did summer camps. So that was nothing new to me. And I enjoyed rolling up my sleeves as that like new math teacher, like relearning math with the kids. That was what was cool about it. I didn't come in with this like, hey, kids, I know everything. But eventually I got to some point where after a few years of experience, I felt pretty confident about the stuff I knew. And then I noticed there was some, that confidence actually worked against me. It was almost like sometimes feeling like a show off, like, hey, check out all these cool math skills that I know. You should learn them and I'm going to show you how to do this. But somewhere along the line, some other things came into my life that changed my thinking. I'm like, wait a minute, the kids, go back to the kids. It was fun rolling up our sleeves. Let's do that again. You know, it's so interesting. We've had variations of this conversation in some previous episodes and we often sort of think that often the people who come out of school thinking like, I'm good at math and I'm going to go and I'm going to teach that to kids. And, you know, what we forget is how much 
uh, that intuition is built and just through experience, right? Like the, Hey, I've taught this course six times now. So there's a lot of like the, <laughs> the details there that I'm not explicit about anymore because I just sort of assume everybody knows it now. Right. Whereas, you know, in those first couple of years, like you're saying, it's like, you're making sure like I'm covering everything. I'm trying to make sure it's as super crystal clear as possible. And despite the fact that you may not have had, let's say the content knowledge that you had after the first couple of years of experience, you probably spent more time being explicit and that probably paid off much more so than us kind of zooming through things and doing, like you said, that quote unquote showing off. Totally. It's a good summary, man. I feel like we probably lived parallel lives there. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. I was on the other side, you know, like I was the teacher that went into math or, you know, as a student was good at math, went into teach math because I was good at math, went through university all of that going in and being like, you know what, I'm going to show kids how to do math in a great way. But for years, you know, 10 years, I taught it the very traditional way. Like, you know, Christina Tonneville calls herself the recovering traditionalist. And it's like, that was exactly me. Like I am now like switching or it's been a good number of years now that I've switched over to trying to almost forget the math I already knew so that I could be more beneficial to the students. Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Oh, sure. Yeah. The older you get, the harder we have to work at playing dumb and not in a pandering way to kids, more of a like, yeah, I have an idea of how I might want to solve this, but it's more important that I listen to you first and how you're thinking about this or where you're stuck. Because, yeah, you know, you and I know, I could just easily come over to your desk and bail you out of this math problem, for the most part, of what we can teach, you know. If you put me in a calculus, or the past couple years, the teachers I've supported, you put me in their calculus classes, and it's like, then I'm legitimately, like, I haven't done this for a long time, so I'm relying heavily on the kids to be like, look, I'm not playing dumb here, I'm not gaming (laughs) you, I literally don't know what to do here, (laughs) so you need to teach me that. We've got to ask you this, and I think you know this has got to coming if you've been listening to some of the episodes, is that we want you to think back into your education and what would be your most memorable moment from math class? I got a lot of directions I could go. Like I was the kid that gamed. I used math to game the syllabus of the teachers when they passed it out. Like, all right, so how much homework do I need to do and how many tests do I need to get A's on? When can I get a C? Like... All that, st- I like use the syllabus in my favor to do the least amount of work possible. And God forbid my kids hear this 
episode in years. But anyway, I was able to use my math skills to a weird advantage at the time, but that's definitely not one of my favorite math moments. Sorry. Yeah, I had a lot of upperclassmen in my math classes in high school. And so I would benefit from having sometimes better math skills than them. So like I had one buddy that had culinary before our math period. So our exchange for me helping him in math class, he would frequently bring me food. So that was always cool. As for teachers creating those magical math moments, I didn't have a lot of those. And so, yeah, I was thinking about that. I had like a pre-calculus teacher who played football in college and like, what else did he do? Oh, he like, it took seven attempts to pass the bar exam. Like the guy was not happy about teaching. Like the moments that I remember were like, he would get through explaining something on the chalkboard and a lot of us would raise our hand and be like, so can you explain that one step again? We didn't get that. And you'd be like, well, I already explained it. You should get it. You should already know how to do it. You know, like he was sending a message to us that it's like, yeah, well, we don't get it kind of thing. But I would say my favorite math moments outside of being a student in high school would be this recent year as an instructional coach. We did instructional rounds with our math teachers where they got to go see other math teachers teach in their own classroom. And so part of my job as the coach is leading up to those instructional rounds. All right, so let's say Kyle is going to teach something. I'll work with Kyle. Like, Kyle, what do you got planned? What do you want to do when the other teachers are coming in? It's not a dog and pony show, but like, what's something that we've been working on, you and I together collaborating on? Okay, so let's put that into action. So then on the day of the instructional rounds, John and I and a couple other teachers would come into your classroom and we'd pretty much take notes. Kyle would give us evidence or areas of focus that we want to pay attention to for you and gather some evidence since there's additional sets of eyes and ears in the classroom. But John and I would essentially be there to steal ideas from Kyle, the classroom teacher. And then the same thing in the same day, we would switch. Like So then John would go to his classroom and Kyle and I, would we'd go into your classroom and do the same thing. We'd steal ideas. And we'd, there's a pre-brief in the morning and a debrief at the end of the day. And those were my favorite moments from this school year because the teachers were giddy. It's like, wow, we finally are getting into other teachers' classrooms. We're seeing each other teach. And you know that we had high, that had such high impact on them because they took those ideas and implemented them like almost immediately. Like, hey, I'm going to take that thing that I saw in John's class and I'm going to use it in my class. I'm going to take that thing from Kyle's class and I'm use it. Like, so recently those have been my favorite math moments when teachers see each other teach. And side note on that is like, you see teachers like practice their skills with students who aren't theirs. Like, so when the teachers would be in the other teachers' classrooms helping other students, just seeing them work on questioning strategies and stuff like that, because there's not necessarily like this personal responsibility that this is my student, not somebody else's student. So there's, there's lower risk there. But for the most part, the point is like, just teachers seeing each other teach is so valuable. And it was amazing this year and uh, the highlight of my school year this year. Right. So those That's, have been my favorite moments. In my district, uh, my school, we've been involved in lesson study for the last four years, which is our math department has uh, been getting together quite periodically uh, given release time. So supply teachers or substitute teachers go into our classrooms while we go meet in a room and we co-plan lessons together. 
and the great part about that is we're all bringing different things to that lesson. And we've picked a focus to say, like, we're going to try to get better at this. We're going to try to address this learning need for the students that we've kind of identified in advance. And what I love is that my math department has variations of different teachers and they all bring different things to that table. And we co-plan a lesson that is, since we're co-planning it, we're all putting something on the table for that lesson. And then one of us will go and deliver it and we all go watch. And like you said, it's awesome not only to see other classrooms and other teachers in their classrooms, but it's really awesome to see how the kids react to something you've planned. Because as a teacher, you're watching students when you're delivering lessons, but you don't get to see everything. And when you're in the back or in the side and you're not on the main stage, you can watch different things and you get a sense of how the students are reacting in different ways. And it's so valuable to see some of that. I totally agree. Like those are the most beneficial ways that we've done PED in our school and in our district has adopted that in the last couple of years. So it's kind of district wide now, but it's been great. And I, I totally agree with what you just said too. So I relate for sure. Yeah. I found that like, I'm so glad we were able to do it too, because my first few years as an instructional coach, I found myself like almost like, wait, I'm getting paid to do this. Like I'm in so many other teachers classrooms where I was able to steal ideas. So like take an idea from one other teacher and say, Hey, you know, it's so-and-so John's using this in his classroom and you might be across the district and across the city. And I'm working with Kyle and I was like, Hey, well, John tried this in his class. So check this out. So I, like that was cool that I was able to see it in other teachers' classrooms, but it was like, there's still a missing piece here. It would be awesome if they saw each other teach, you know, cause like I found myself like making a Google form, like when I'm in teacher's classrooms, like if I ever return to the classroom, I'm going to take all these ideas and take pictures and steal and like make this spreadsheet of things that I want to do because I was growing so much more as an educator because I was outside the classroom in other classrooms. Like how do we get other teachers to do this? And there's something to it. Once you get past, or I shouldn't say get past, but the, probably the trickiest part to those is navigating the human emotional adult side of things in terms of our passion, vulnerability. There's a lot to learn with that. And that's tricky. You know, we do a lot of going into classrooms in my district. We call it a consulting role, but we do a lot of in-class work with teachers as well, not just workshops. And, you know, it's really finding ways to help. And I want to say it's like convincing teachers that we are going in and we're going to like make it asset-based. We are not looking for deficit. We are not evaluative. We are not trying to judge. Like we're trying to go in. And like you said, I like how you frame it. We want to go in and kind of selfishly steal from you. Is that okay with you? And, you know, people feel a little better about that, but I find it's like initially there's still that hesitation, but once people do it, it's like the band-aids ripped off and then people are like, oh yeah, let's do this. And the part I love, like selfishly for myself, oftentimes I'll be going in and I'll be doing some of the like co-teaching with teachers as we go. Like sometimes they want to feel comfortable with somebody else there to kind of help out. But I love sitting on the side like you both were discussing and really just watching kids. But then also like I'll pull up the chair next to some random kids and I'll just want to ask them some focusing questions. Like, I'm just really curious about what they're thinking about the work that they're doing. And it's so interesting, like from those experiences, it makes me completely reevaluate how I used to assess students in my own classroom. Because when you look on the page, it's like I approach a kid and I'm watching them work and I'm like making an assumption about what they're thinking. And then I have the conversation and it's like this student knows so much more than what was put on that page. 
And oftentimes what I'm looking at, the assumption I made is completely off base. So it just really, for me, again, selfishly, I'm there learning about how important listening to what students are thinking and like asking them to share what they're thinking instead of just taking that stack home and trying to, you know, mark it at (laughs) night and interpret what they tried to put down on paper. Totally. You mentioned focus questions like that in itself is like in order to do focusing questions, you also have to listen, like you said. And if you're not listening, if you're doing the funneling questions where you're just like you want kids to get to one thing and you're kind of like, hey, just fill in this blank for me of this word, this one word or this one concept or this one number with funneling questions, then it's like, it's crazy. And what I noticed was we did some work on that with the teachers and it was so fun to listen to them work on their questioning strategies, specifically focus questions of questions that they were asking kids that required them to listen and then adjust how they proceeded in that conversation based off what the student was saying. And that was so cool. Like another cool moment to see educators do that. Right. Almost like automatically we want to essentially, we're like, we know where we want to send the kids. So, you know, I'm going to essentially tell you what to do and I'll put it in the form of a question, you know, like, and you know, like, oh, are you sure you want to try it that way? Have you ever (laughs) thought about using this? And then it's like, okay, I guess I'll use that. And those two types of questions have been on my mind. Uh, A colleague of mine and good friend, Yvette Lehman from my district, you know, talks about this type of questioning quite a bit. So it's like been on my mind. And I think every time I'm asking kids a question, I'm thinking to myself, like, all right, was that a good, you know, like, I'm constantly evaluating myself thinking, did I just send them down this funneled path? Or am I actually leaving it open enough where they can actually see their strategy through based on what they were thinking, and not what I was thinking. So super cool. And sometimes you got to ask a closed question to get you to a better open question, I've learned in the sense that like, so do you agree that 5x equals 20x is 4? I don't even know. But like, okay, so you're good with x equals 4. Now, what do we do with that in this next part? Like if it's a linear system or something like, I don't know. But sometimes I've realized like asking focusing questions or too many open questions is frustrating for kids as well as a time sucker up or whatever you want to call it. Like it sucks up time sometimes and you're like, oh man, why didn't I just get to the point? So there's no one way to do it is what I'm learning. However, it's almost like reading your audience and like, is this kid kind of a good closed question kid or an open question kid? Like what can I get, you know, give and take with this kid? And like, what do they need in this moment, right? Like it's always like those moments and figuring out like what I always say nowadays, like my answer to everything is it depends because, you know, I used to give like hard, fast kind of rules about things like, no, you never do this or you always do that. And now it's sort of like, ah, it just depends, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, we don't want people driving certain kids nuts because that's not the time for that type of questioning. Yeah. Totally. I want to chat about a resource that you have built. And if I think back to my first experience with your resource, uh, you were being a little bit modest in your introduction to yourself about like what you do. And I think there's a lot of people out here who know about Estimation 180 and that you were the creator of it. When I think back, I think one of my very first presentations at any sort of conference or workshop was sharing your website, Estimation180.com. I would love to talk about Still it. Because waiting I, for the check on that, by the way, John. Yeah, yeah. I will send it your <laughs> way. Uh, yeah. 
But I've been loving this site. I know every time I go somewhere and talk about, you know, great resources, teachers are using their classrooms. I ask about this and so many teachers know about this. So uh, I think people listening would like to know a little bit of background on it. Like they want to fill us in on like maybe if they don't know what it is, what is it? But also like, where did you come up with this idea? Awesome. I'm super happy to share with with you about it. And I really appreciate that, that I was part of your first presentation, man. That means a lot. It means a lot that you are right here talking to us. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple months, maybe even a couple years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. If you had asked me this question a few years ago, I'd probably have a different answer. But now I think of it as a website for teachers and students to enjoy together as they build number sense and make math connections. So if you haven't visited the site, there's over 180, there's over 200, I think, actually now, visual estimation challenges that serve like as a conversation piece in classrooms for teachers and students. And it allows them to engage in many aspects of the mathematical process. And I'm going to list a few. It's not uh, an exhaustive list of the mathematical process, but simply asking questions, thinking critically, creating a reasonable range, like formulating plans, executing that plan and revising things once you get more information. So when you're attending to precision, you're kind of going throughout that process. It's kind of like a loop and you can do all of those again. You can do some of those again. I feel like it's a low risk environment because the visuals provide a conversation piece. The product isn't so much what's of value. It's more the process that I've learned in my experience. And I feel I've uh, talked to teachers and when they email me or tweet me or talk to me at conferences, that's kind of how they feel. Like my kids love it. Okay. Why do your kids love it? Well, it gets them thinking and you know, they get really upset. They're off by a little bit. And then like right there, like that's where I could probably have a 30 minute conversation with that teacher and like, okay, well, there's, they're passionate about something. If they care that much, does that mean that they invested a lot of time? Uh, yeah. So if they've invested a lot of time in coming up with that estimate, I think at first glance, you're thinking, oh yeah, they value the product, their estimate. No, it's like they've valued the process, the time they spent asking questions, thinking critically, formulating a plan about it. So Yeah, it came out of an area in my teaching career, the idea of Estimation 180, where I found myself saying year after year, like, oh man, the kids kind of like lack number sense. And more specifically, like they're unable to connect numbers with things in our world. Like, it's just kind of crazy that I could say to a kid like, hey, walk five feet over there. And they have no idea what five feet is or something like that. It's a small example. So it was inspired by a few sources. One would be, like I just mentioned, I was frustrated with my students lacking number sense. What can I do to help them, help themselves kind of thing. The other was once I found out about Dan Meyer and started exploring a lot of his work, it was this idea of making a guess or an estimate with creating a too low or a too high guess. That work was embedded in a lot of his three acts. Also like included some type of questions in his warmups. I noticed like 
uh, questions like how many black keys are on a piano or how many white keys are on a piano. And I tried those questions out with kids. Just I typed up the text and it was like the kids had no idea. And I was like, yeah, I have no idea either. Like this is kind of like a fun fact thing to Google or we would talk about at a party. But like, how do you guys access this? And even if we had piano players in the room, like would they even know? Like, I don't know. So once I started experimenting with a three-act format and the videos and the visuals, they weren't all videos, it was like, wait, there's something here. The kids are like, it's a conversation piece and they have access to that conversation through the visuals. So that was a big part of it. And so the third point of inspiration was like, how do I do this? Where am I experiencing these moments where kids actually are intuitively making estimates? And as a teacher who's tall, as a person who's tall, and a teacher of middle school students where I naturally tower over a lot of them, I'd walk into classrooms of other teachers or kids on the first day, first week would be like, dude, Mr. Stadel, how tall are you? And I didn't pick up on this for the first few years that kids were doing this because I just quickly told them my height. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I started thinking about it, like, wait a minute, there's something to that question. So when I flipped the question back on them, I said, all right, well, how tall do you think I am? And all of a sudden it was amazing. Like they started thinking, well, I think you're about this height. And then I'd be like, okay, well, why? Well, and then they would do different things, which was amazing also. So like kids would stand next to me. Can I stand next to you? Oh, sure. Why are you standing next to me? Or can you stand over there? Like I'm picturing my dad standing next to you and my dad is six foot two or something like that. So the kids were intuitively putting a plan together. They asked the question and then they started putting a plan together and then they executed that plan because I allowed them to do so. And they came up with an estimate. And then like, I learned that if I prolonged that answer to them of my actual height, then they were more invested. And then once I told them my height, like six foot four, it, like the reaction was no longer like a, oh, okay. It was like, oh man, I was so close. I was six foot three. Like, you know, like, <laughs> told you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and then the kids were like, some kids were like super bummed because like they were off by like two inches and that that took me a while to realize like wait a minute like why are you bummed like yeah you want to be accurate and you want to be close but two inches is phenomenal like if you're two inches away from somebody's height you know especially like with women if like you overestimate their height they'll be like oh yeah I'm, I'm, you know like, like that's a compliment. I'll take so, it. Like, yeah but we like, can go on a <laughs> So when I started picking up on that stuff and then it's like, all right, there's more to this. I got to keep doing this. And then something intuitively was driving. I, it was more of an intuition, but also like how much can I milk this? Cause I came into one year, <laughs> I came into one school year going like, all right, I'm going to try and do this every day of the year, <laughs> which was a lofty goal. And for me to make that happen was I had to milk situations as best as possible. And it actually paid off in the end because it was like, well, let's do my height. Now let's do my wife's height. Now let's do my right. son's height. Now let's do my daughter's height. Let's do this height of this random parking structure. Like I was milking it, but also at the same time, I was building these connections because kids had reference points. And like, how often right. do we, I've, mm -hmm. I'm a late learner in the sense, like how often did I not provide opportunities for my kids to make connections in math class, not just estimation alone, but like just in math class by comparing things and referencing things. And so that process of estimation 180, there's so many transferable skills that can be implemented into the regular math curriculum, any math course, any math grade level. 
I believe in and confident that like kids enjoy that process when they have access to it through mm-hmm. the visuals. And right. that's been my journey. Right. There's other things I could share with you, um, but I could probably talk for hours. Yeah, we'll dig into them. I'm super excited. There's so much even just to unpack in what you said Kyle's there. Made and a like, ton of notes. You know, <laughs> yeah, like I'm in, you know, we're in our Google Doc here and I'm like all over the place here and I'm sure I'm going to miss one, but you know, I'm going to work backwards and start with this idea like you said, like you're saying it's like you were milking these scenarios and like I'm in my head picturing you're helping kids mathematize the world around them, right? Like you're looking to scenarios and you're helping kids to see that there's so much math thinking around us that we just ignore every single day. And you've found a way to bring this into their lives and to help them like notice some of this stuff. And going way back to the beginning of the conversation, like where kids, you were saying like they're off by two inches and they're getting mad about it. And like on some levels, people are like, well, we don't want kids to be mad, but no, it's like they're frustrated because they want to be more precise. When has that ever happened in a math classroom? Where kids are like, like, you know, they're upset because they were just trying to get the work done in the past because that's what you're supposed to do. I just got to get this done. I don't care how close I am or not. Like, will the teacher accept it as is? That's sort of like the goal for like many kids in their math class. So for them to look at that and for you to obviously like, you know, luckily for all of us in the math community, luckily you clued into this idea that, wait a second. We need kids to be estimating. And as you're talking, I'm like, you know, John saying like, I'm typing like a madman. I pulled up the Ontario curriculum from grade one to grade eight. I wanted to get the numbers right. But if I search for the words like estimate or estimation in the Ontario curriculum from grades one to eight, it comes up 92 times. And like how often? Yeah. So how often? There, Kyle. Dang. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. oh, it's great. Oh, give me, give me, a, give me a reasonable range. What's your low? What's your high? Yeah. So that's like a but, ten, um, ten, a, an average of ten per grade level. Ten times you should be at least ten. I don't know how to explain that. <laughs> at least ten standards, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you know, if you like kind of average it out. Like most of the in Ontario, most of the we call them expectations have like estimate. And then like investigate and then blah, blah, blah. And then like determine or calculate or, you know, whatever the wording is. But even the word calculate or calculation, that comes up only 86 times. So like estimate actually comes up more than that word. And, you know, just to kind of drive home this point, like I taught for almost before I started really focusing it on like getting kids estimating and through the use of three act math, through the use of estimation 180. I was not having my kids estimate. Like I was the kid in school that would look at like part A question was estimate, part B was calculate. Like I'd calculate and then I'd like take two off and call that my estimation. <laughs> like I, you know, I was that, that kid just looking to get it done. So, you know, you've created this tool that allows us to like pay more attention. And for me, I look at this and I think about like the spatial reasoning like that we're allowing. You said like making it visual so every kid can act the task. Well, like think about the implications of where we go from spatial reasoning through like counting and additive thinking, a multiplicative thinking. And I look at the different visuals on your site and I look at them and it's like, as a teacher, you could milk these 
you're talking about milking the scenarios from your daily life, but you could literally go into estimation 180 and milk some of these ideas to like draw out some pretty complex thinking, like around fractions, around, you know, that multiplicative relationship. Yeah, I don't know. Just through what you said there, it was like all these crazy fireworks were going off in my mind. So I'm sure I've got a ton. But uh, I was excited to hear you sharing that. And I hope people at home are looking and thinking about this as like, wait a second, am I maximizing the use of this tool? So I'm going to put it to you and say, how do you believe teachers can best maximize the resources on Estimation 180? Like, what might that look like, sound like? Like, feel free if you want to share, like, what if you're just getting started or, you know, maybe you've been using them for a while. Like, how might you maybe up the ante a little bit to draw out as much number sense out of it as possible? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I would first encourage any teacher familiar with it or new to it to just first think through the idea of the difference between a guess and an estimate. This is pretty big. You might think it's, oh, they're pretty similar. And so I have some stuff online, resources, where I can lead some people if they're interested. And I think this is a valuable part of the process because here's how I typically explain it. Like if the three of us sat down at a restaurant that has those like red painted ketchup bottles, you know there's ketchup inside, but you have no idea how much ketchup is inside. And I said to one of you, I said, hey, John, how much ketchup do you think is in that bottle? Now, John might start reaching with his hand to pick it up. And I just say, no, 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 just guess. Because that's what it is. Like, John has no idea how much is in there unless like John was watching the restaurant patrons before him squeeze a bunch of ketchup onto their French fries or something like, I don't know. But you didn't have that chance. So like, you have zero information in the ketchup, the bottle is painted red, so you have no idea. That's a guess. And so the second John picks up that bottle, he now has more information And we've now transitioned from a guess to an estimate because he can use the weight of it. He can shake it. He can, I don't know, he can do something with it that's going to provide him with more information to say something like, it's about half full or there's about a quarter left or something. He's narrowing it down to about like a range. So I would first encourage anybody, novice, expert to estimating, really fine tune your definition of guess and estimate because we've all been there where kids are just like, 3,000. They just blurt out numbers. And that's literally what it is. It's a guess. And if you accept that, you accept their guesses, then they're going to continue to give them to you. And it's their easy way out of not thinking. If you find a strategic and welcoming way, an inviting way to uh, get them thinking by saying, hey, you know, an estimate is actually more like a strategic choice of a number. Graham Fletcher and I have had multiple conversations around this. And I love Graham's definition that it's like an estimate is a strategic choice of a number. So you're choosing a number based off some strategy, some plan that you executed. I love that thinking. So that's how one step in maximizing the resources at Estimation 180. The second is I'm going to take Graham's definition and extend it to an estimate is a strategic choice of a number within a reasonable range. So spend some time on the range. The range is important. And the website is dated. I have plans this summer to update it. And one of the big updates it's going to get is changing the terminology between too low and too high as your range. I'm going to change that to lower limit and upper limit. Because what happens is if, uh, like, how tall is Mr. Stadel? And a kid says, too low is one inch. They're correct. They're absolutely correct. If I said, what's too high? And they said, 100 feet. They're absolutely correct. That's too low and that's too high. 
I like the phrasing of upper limit, lower limit, probably because I've been hanging around a bunch of high school math teachers a lot. And that idea of limits is very popular vocabulary. But more importantly, like limits make us, I think, get us to the point of like, well, you know what? Yeah, but what's a height that I just, you know, I can't be below? Like, oh, well, you're not, you can't be less than six feet. All right. So then put that as your lower limit. And man, I've never seen somebody past seven feet tall. So, okay, then put that as your upper limit. So that would be the second point to maximize estimation 180 is to spend some time on that range. And the range is a beautiful place to be because it allows some flexibility in your thinking. It's more inviting for kids to say, look, I can fall within these two numbers and it's a good challenge. And then you can get meta with that. Like what's the range of the ranges in the classroom? Like what's your, so that's another way to do it. I just want to jump in here. I love that idea of the range. And, you know, I've been using estimation 180 stuff for a while now, and it happens in all the classrooms that kids say a billion, right? Or like one, it's more than one. And so one way that I don't know where I heard this, I didn't make it up, but I heard it somewhere, someone using it and I adapted it to like, what's riskier than that? Like you said a billion, but can you make a riskier too high or riskier too low? And so then they automatically, that risky word comes out and they're like, oh, okay, I got to get closer, right? I got to risk it. And then when somebody else says, okay, it's maybe, I don't know what we're estimating. It doesn't matter, but there's somebody else will bring it down. And then it's like, okay, anybody riskier than that? And then it's like, who's the riskiest in the classroom? And then we can say like, oh, I'm riskier than that because I'm going to say this. And then somebody, you know, then I just throw your hands up, guys. Like, who's that too risky for? And then, you know, a whole bunch of kids will throw their hands back up. Then the class riskiness factor can go back up a little bit. Okay, or as a class, we're about here. Otherwise, we're too risky for most of us. And then we start bringing it up from the floor. So I've been using risky, but I like the upper limit, lower limit too. You could still incorporate risky. I've heard Dan Meyer said, be braver. So that's the equivalent of your risky. And it's the same idea. Just like, yeah, can you Maybe be that's braver? where I heard it. Yeah. yeah. So, it, you know, uh, sometimes a lot of this stuff just is like, wait, it's like telephone, right? Like you heard it from mm-hmm. somebody that heard it from somebody that heard it from somebody. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, sometimes molding it to uh, your own personality and those types of things, I think those are key too. And sometimes I think it, it's easy for us as educators to, you know, we'll go to a workshop or we read a book or we read a blog or whatever. And then it's sometimes we try to force things to look and sound the exact same way that somebody else does it. I think that's kind of some of the fun too is, you know, how do you kind of make it a little bit your own there? And I think kids appreciate that too, right? That they don't see you trying to fit a mold that isn't actually you. Or even the terminology that kids might use, you just latch onto that and say, hey, I really like the way that Kyle described his range. And I asked him about it and he says, well, I wanted to be a little risky today. You know, like, so, you know, like it can even come from what kids say. I would say another way to for teachers to maximize estimation 180 would be there are opportunities for you to use the tasks with the content that you're required to teach. Admittedly, there's not a process for you to just say, yeah, I'm teaching this standard and click on that standard and like estimation 180 challenges populate and you're like, you know, that's definitely on my list of things to do at some point. But don't let that hold you back. You could pick any day. And like, for example, I've got a series of cheese balls on large plates, small plates, baking trays, stuff like that. And you could do it in a high school class. I've done it in a kindergarten class. I've done it in a third grade class. I've done it in middle school classrooms. It doesn't matter. The kids think about it in very similar and different ways. It's the skills that the students bring into the task that you can now transfer to the things you need to teach. So in those specific examples with the cheese ball, you're talking about area. 
You're talking about how much area is being covered by cheese balls. And then you're talking about the defined region. So like a circle, a rectangle, you're talking about possibly negative space and the strategies that kids come up with. If you're listening, so to maximize the resource is listen to what your students are coming up with, tap into those, and those now become the skills that you can transfer to the stuff that you are doing in your class. I know a lot of teachers think of it as a warm-up, and that's awesome. I agree. When there's opportunities to use it with your curriculum, fantastic. If you can get a full-on blanket of using the skills and transfer those skills by comparing the previous day to today's, like that's huge within math. So that would be one of the other ways for teachers to maximize the resources is by looking for skills to transfer. Yeah, those are really great. And I had a note here to ask what happens is when we share resources at workshops or in those lesson study meetings, or, you know, when you run into teachers, and I'm sure this happened to you before, where you share a three act math kind of thing, or, or estimation 180 is teachers will say, you know, that's great, but uh, I don't have time to spend on that. You know, like I have to teach the curriculum, I have to teach the standards. So I think you've just touched on a lot of answers to that main question of help those teachers see that you're teaching more than just the curriculum. And also, if you want to address the curriculum, hey, these do that too. So would you sell anything else to those teachers that, you know, they always have that, oh, I can't do that because uh, I don't have time. Like my class is only 60 minutes and uh, I got to get right to the punch here. What would you say to those kind of teachers and more than you've already uh, answered that? Have a beer. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> You know what, like there's, I would love to ask why. I don't know what I would say to them. I'd want to listen to them, probably ask them a question and just say, so what's holding you back? You know, and I probably know most of those answers, like time, like you said, is one of them. So then it would probably fall back on like, well, what skills do you want your kids to have when you're doing the math that you need to spend the time doing? And if they start listing things like, well, I want my kids to think critically. I want my kids to think to stick with a problem. I want them to make sense of it. I want them to use the numbers, use appropriate numbers. I say, oh, okay, well, everything that you listed there, or it doesn't have to necessarily be everything that they listed, but so I noticed that you kept going back to um, thinking critically and executing a plan or something. So and then I would segue into like, so you can do that with the estimation tasks and you'll see your kids doing those skills that you want them. And it's your opportunity to name it and call it out and say, hey, I loved when Kyle used this strategy of stacking. And guys, he's like adding these stacks together. And we call that in math, the additive property. Or, you know, John over here saw one thing, but then he noticed that he could get like 10 of those in this defined space that we did in this estimation task. So he multiplied and said, that's called the multiplicative property. Like there are opportunities for teachers to name the skills that they see their students doing and then say like, I want you guys to do this in this stuff we're supposed to teach too. So I think I'd start, probably start with questions and then listen to what the skills that they want their students to have and say like, yeah, you'll see those come out when you do these estimation tasks. I would argue, just like you said, like learning more about what the challenges are, like what are the at least perceived hurdles that teachers are having? And, you know, a question I might want to ask a teacher is, so like, where is estimation coming out in my classroom? So if not through this resource, you know, where am I purposely drawing on students to make meaningful estimates? And, you know, I think the struggle is if I'm resorting to, let's say, my textbook or my worksheets or whatever it is, it's very difficult for students to make meaningful estimates because all the information's on the page. 
page, right? Like it's like you can't ignore the measures that are on the diagram or those types of things. So that withholding of information, I think, is so important. And, you know, I like how you mentioned, take these and try to link them to the concepts that you're going to be working on that day. And, you know, you don't have to start with day one just because that's what the website is day one. (laughs) I could go to the cheesy poos section because that's related to area and I'm going to be working on area. So, you know, I really like how you help sort of paint a bit of a picture of how that might actually be used most effectively in the classroom. So the next thing we wanted to ask you, and we we're looking at the time here and we don't want to run out of time, but, you know, word on the street is that you may be planning on bringing us another math podcast to all of our wonderful, wonderful listeners of Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about that? Like, what are your plans and what's it going to look like, sound like? Yeah, uh, thanks, man. The word on the street. It's a small street right now, for sure. (laughs) The podcast. All three of us are on it. Yeah, (laughs) we're like shouting across the street from each other. So here's the deal. The podcast I'm entertaining and getting ready to launch this year at some point is Math Confessions. And what that means is I want to use the podcast as an opportunity to interview math educators, and I want to hear their stories about times when they regret using certain methods, practices, things they did at one point where they were like, they thought that was the best that they could do at the time. And at some point they realized, oh, there's a better way to do it. So they learned a lesson. They learned something about themselves. So I want to hear the story about something they regret, a confession, and what they learned and what they did with what they learned. So for me, example, like I remember teaching integers in middle school and I came up with like two acronyms and it's not my proudest moments teaching. I came up with this whole football scheme for slope intercept with Y equals MX plus B, not my proudest moments, but there's a story there. At the time I thought I was doing the best I could for my kids. And then I realized later on at some point, I learned some lessons that you know, I was doing them a disservice and I changed my ways and I've been growing ever since. So I think there's a lot of power in us hearing from each other that this is a journey for all of us. We've started, we had to start somewhere. What have we learned? What are some lessons we've learned along the way? And I think it would, for an audience that would say like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who's with these challenges. And then at the same time, offering some resolution for those and reassurances too, that it's like, all right, cool. So I can still take something that I learned and move forward in my teaching career or as a math educator. So I'm looking forward to interviewing a lot of people, yourselves included. I I would love for both of you to share your stories and what lessons you've learned. We would love to. So yeah, that's Math Confessions. And if you head to mathconfessions.com, you can uh, sign up and I'll holler at you when we got some episodes in the bank and are ready to launch probably in the fall sometime. Ah, the fall of this year. 2020 is the goal. Yeah. Or no, 2019. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. That's this year. (laughs) Fall of 2019. Cool. That's exciting. I'm pretty pumped to listen to that and also to chat for sure. That's uh, awesome of you too and exciting of you and uh, lots of work coming your way. And, but I think the math community needs it. I appreciate that. That's cool. I'm looking forward to it. Well, listen, Andrew, we've had a pleasure and a blast just chatting away with you. You just shared out mathconfessions.com. So make sure 
that you head to mathconfessions.com. My guess is there's going to be some sort of opt-in box there for you to hop on his list. Andrew, where can people find more from you? We heard Estimation 180. Is there anything else out there that people should be aware of? Uh, Maybe where they can follow you on social media, just to make sure they've got a complete view. And then we'll make sure to also include all of these links in the show notes. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, the best place to find me is probably at estimation180.com. You can find me on Twitter. It's uh, Mr. Underscore Stadel. So M-R underscore S-T-A-D-E-L. And if you head over to Estimation 180, I've got a place for you where you can subscribe to a newsletter that I'm going to rejuvenate here and start sending out some ideas and some good stuff your way in preparation for my hopes is to also have an online workshop available to teachers in spring of 2020. So the intent behind that is to share a lot of the things and resources and lessons I've learned, not only from my own classroom, but from other teachers' classrooms and their experiences and dive into a lot of the things that I just discussed here in terms of how to maximize the resources at Estimation 180. And then I just had a side note, a quick thought. I was thinking, oh gosh, if you guys are on the Math Confessions podcast, we could title that one like, tap into geek minds or something like that. I don't know. We are rebranding the podcast today. I don't know. Yeah. Rebranding right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's how people can get a hold of me. My phone number is, <coughs> so they can also call me there too. Right. So yeah. One, one, nine hundred. <laughs> what? <laughs> Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Andrew, we want to thank you for uh, spending the last hour with us. It's been a pleasure and we'd love to connect with you in the future. So we definitely want to thank you and hope you have a great rest of your week and back in the classroom or back in the coaching role. But we're pretty pumped to uh, talk with you further. Yeah, I want to thank you guys too before uh, you guys can definitely say the final cutoff, but I can't thank you guys enough for this. This has been a lot of fun talking math and estimation 180 and everything else. So I've learned a lot from you guys and I'm excited to hear more podcasts from you guys. Thanks so much, Andrew. We will catch you soon. We are super excited to see the launch of that podcast and we'll see more stuff coming on estimation 180 as well. So we'll talk to you soon and uh, have a great, great evening. Thanks, guys. See ya. We want to thank Andrew again for spending some time with us to share his insights with us and you, the Math Moment Maker community. If you haven't checked out estimation180.com yet, what are you waiting for? Kyle, what was your biggest takeaway from our chat with Andrew? My biggest takeaway is how we can take any math resource, and in particular, his Estimation 180 resource, and find ways to make it more rich by applying it to the learning goal for that particular lesson that particular day. Let's not think about trying to use a great resource like this and then worrying about trying to fit it all in. How could I take that resource and how can I actually use it to help complement the lesson that I'm going to be teaching that day anyway? I think Andrew did a great job of really helping us see how we can actually incorporate this particular resource without having that worry of jamming it all in. How about you, John? What resonated with you? What I took away from that conversation was when he was explaining his role as a change agent, but also, you know, helping teachers change some of their classrooms. I really enjoyed his big moment that he said this year about having teachers watch other teachers and bring them together and uh, learn from each other. You know, I resonated with that. You could hear that in the episode because we do that in our class. But what I really took away from that was how he was bringing teachers from across the district 
together to learn from each other, like uh, only take good things from this lesson, right? Like don't watch for judgment, watch for assets only, and then take that away and take that back to your school. I really enjoyed that. And uh, I think I can take that away from my school and my district too. So that was my big takeaway. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It, you know, it can be really difficult to get that culture started. So I think that's the thing we got to do. We just got to do it, like rip that bandaid off, get in there, get uncomfortable for a little while. And you know what? Try to look at every single lesson and try to take at least one thing away that you can implement in your own classroom. So awesome stuff. So how about you at home? What's your big takeaway from this episode? We want you to share it with a friend, a colleague, or send us a message on social media at Make Math Moments on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Because remember, if you're not sharing your reflection, you're not going to actually bring that new learning with you. In order to ensure you don't miss out on new episodes as they come out each Monday morning at 5.30 Eastern Standard Time, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Also, if you're liking what you're hearing, please share the podcast with a colleague and help us reach a wider audience by leaving us a quick review on iTunes and tweeting us at Make Math Moments on Twitter. Show notes and links to resources Resources from this episode can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 27. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 27. You can also find Make Math Moments on all social media platforms and seek out our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Don't miss our next episode. Well, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce and I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And half as for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind and plans only go so far you can make you know detailed plans and and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable but that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job how do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training, uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. After completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free 
training.